Welcome to the Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate Podcast, brought to you by Vertical Street Ventures, where we talk to top experts and seasoned investors to help provide clarity and key insights to keep you safe on your journey to financial freedom. Our goal is to help you get educated on how to create passive income for you and your family using real estate as your vehicle. If you enjoy the show, please go to iTunes and leave a rating and a written review to help us grow and reach more listeners. Welcome back to the Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate Podcast. My name is Peter Pomeroy and I am your host. Today, we have Will Matheson with us. At the end of 2017, Will and his twin brother were a few months away from graduating from Columbia University's Master in Real Estate program and were faced with a choice, go the traditional corporate route or start their own company. Despite having no track record, no ownership experience, and very little equity, they bet on themselves and started their own company, Matheson Capital. By January of 2018, they had already completed their first acquisition. In the five years since their first purchase, they have completed over a dozen multifamily student housing acquisitions at a value exceeding $100 million and at an average investor IRR of 40% on their six completed projects. Will? Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. I'm excited to first dig in your dig into your story and then understand uh, your business now. So with that, let's first start with where you were when you were you know, your motivation to go to Columbia. That's not a you know dip my toe in the water step. So what was going on that made you? you know, want to jump into that kind of a program and then launch into real estate? Where had you been in real estate? What was going on? So prior to attending Columbia, my brother and I were both brokers at Marcus and Millichap down in their Raleigh office. So, you know, we'd been doing brokerage for a couple of years and we we decided, yeah, we have a lot of real estate experience, but we'd rather be on the ownership side of things. Uh, additionally, we had a family friend, call him a mentor, who went to the program highly recommended it to us going back years, but always said, look, you need to get some experience in real estate before you go. It's not something where you should jump straight from undergrad to go into. So we'd gotten the experience, we saw the opportunity, and we wanted to transition from brokerage to ownership. Okay. And I want to make sure we spend a little time chatting about Marcus and Bill Chap. I was a broker at Collier's for a number of years. It was a you know a great experience for me. And so let's let's just make sure we like weave weave your Marcus and Millichap experience into the conversation as as appropriate. But so in so in your 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 write up your bio, you know, a couple of things you know popped out at you know for me, which were despite having no track record, no ownership experience, and very little equity, they bet on themselves, and then kind of similarly limited resources get scaled to a hundred million dollars. The overarching question is, how did you do that? And then I've got some kind of you know pieces behind that, but like you know, why don't you first give it to you with the with the broad question? The broad question of how? Well, it all started because one of our classmates in the program, a guy named Mitch, my brother was, I think he was out at a bar and he overheard Mitch pitching another guy, "Hey, I've got this property in Los Angeles." Uh, that I think it'd be a really good opportunity. It was an $800,000 duplex. You know, it was very, very small. And my brother overheard this and he said, I think we could get involved in that because Evan and I had a little bit of experience prior, back when we were still at Marcus, back in 2015. So at the time we were 23, we 
put a hard money loan on one of our own clients' properties because he had a 1031 exchange. He split his exchange. He had a million dollar equity shortfall. So we we actually started Matheson Capital back then just to put a hard money loan on someone's property so they wouldn't face the tax benefits of failing to complete that exchange. That was a million dollars. This was an $800,000 acquisition. We said, we've raised this type of money before. Let's get involved in this property. So we did that. We bought in January and then Two months later, in March, we sold for $985,000. So thank you, Mitch. You know, the IRR, phenomenal, phenomenal IRR based on the hold period. <laughs> but uh, right, that was, right, right. That was our start. That was what really kind of got us moving in that direction. And then we bought another deal in May of 2018. And then we were buying deals January 2019, February 2019. So just like, so just like this, just the, and it may seem kind of like odd where, like where I'm going, but like the next deal, like give me a sense of like the size of that deal and where I'm going and, and I'll like take the mystery out for a second, but where I'm going is, is, you know, oftentimes, you know, people are doing big deals or they've achieved like a hundred million in total, you know, they have that assets under management and it's easy to forget that it started with a, a duplex or it started with a, a single family home and that, you know, it built and it built and it built. And and so, you know, you don't have to get into granular detail, but kind of take us through some of those steps and like what, the, you know, where you were, what was going on in your life at that time, you know, if, if you will. Oh, believe me, I can go, I can go chapter and verse on every single one of these. So we start with the two units, 800,000, May of 2018. That's a $1.4 million Six unit acquisition, also in Los Angeles. Mitch found that one as well. Uh, that closed. That sells in, I want to say October 2019. But in January 2019, we bought nine hundred and fifteen thousand dollars student housing property in North Carolina. Very small. We still own that to the de- this day. Uh, the investors love the cash flow. Very low maintenance. Fifteen units in the Charleston area in for one point one three million in February of 2019. 24 units in Charlotte, December 2019 for 3.3 million. And then that's, those are our first five acquisitions. This is 2018, 2019. You know, all those deals, they work out fine. Well, it was all right. So, so, so you're building, you said, I'm going back to this, the, the sentence here. You've got no track record, no ownership experience and very little equity. So presumably along the line, you're, you're having these, these successes, you're building your equity and I'm, I'm trying to kind of fill in, the, fill in these pieces. You're meeting people. You're, you're, you know, probably getting really excited about real estate because it's exciting and fun and you're having some wins. You know, tell me like maybe like how, like the, the part about the, the people you're meeting that might be helping you, like, and you don't even know it necessarily advance to the next level. Yeah. So that, that comes into play with our strategy from the beginning. And I mentioned our first deal we owned for two months. Part of that was by design. One, the deal was so small, the cash flow was always going to be tough. But two, we wanted to buy and sell properties quickly so we could show people we knew what we were doing. We could always, when we were starting out, point back to our brokerage experience and say, I've sold a lot of property. I've analyzed a lot of property. This is what my investors have done. But there's no substitute for actual ownership. So we do the first Los Angeles deal. We do the second Los Angeles deal. We have one completed deal, one other deal that's moving forward. It's being renovated. It gives us the credibility. So when we do the first North Carolina deal, 
you know, we're bringing in a new investor on that one. We bring in, I want to say two to three new investors on our February 2019 close. And when we do the December, we OGP with some people and the amount of investors in that's got to exceed well over 10 investors. So it is in all through this time, you know, in the brokerage community, we're starting to build a name for ourselves on, on the smaller side. We're very big about promoting everything we had done on the investor side of things. We are very adamant about, you know, who's going to give us money for a 10 year hold. 10 years ago, I was in high school at that time. No, mm-hmm. no one's going to do that. What we need to be doing is showing them, hey, look, don't marry us on this deal. This isn't a five or 10 year commitment. We're looking for one, two years in and out heavy value add, high IRRs. And that way you get your money back. You're happy. You've gotten a return, but also, you know, a happy investor is the best referral you'll ever get. So as we're going through Mm -hmm. these deals very quickly, being able to showcase our progress to people, they're telling their friends, you know, we're, we're always pounding the pavement, trying to do the typical networking, but you know, you start with friends and family, you build out from there. And that's what we were doing in the first two years. And we really hit our stride in 2020 when we picked up 232 unit properties in Charleston. So I'm sorry, in 2020, you picked up two, what was the size? There were 32 units. We bought them for 2.2 and $2.75 million. And both of those were sold by the end of 2021. Okay. So then at what point, so I, I, I know on your website that you're, you're, it looked like you're targeting 100 plus unit properties. Is that right? Like plus or minus? Yes. Okay. So at what point did you like start to focus on larger properties, not necessarily the 100 unit? And where I'm going is, is at what point did you transition from like smaller properties to bigger properties? However, you know, you conceptually define that. So the big 2021 is where that really changes. Okay. We start 2021 in March. In March, we do 7.7 million dollar acquisition, which is over twice as big as anything we've ever Ever bought is 69 units. And then our big breakthrough opportunity came with a property called Peak of Boone, student housing, brand new construction. We had an opportunity to partner with a larger sponsor because Boone is a market, having been a broker in North Carolina, having one of our first acquisitions in that market, we were able to go to the go to the primary sponsor, Nitya Capital, say, hey, look, we have experience. This is how we think we can improve things. We raised some money for that opportunity. And we got to work with them on another property in that market, Rivers Walk, which was another $60 million or so of an acquisition. So those two opportunities, they built a lot of credibility for us, you know, getting to raise with a bigger partner saying, you know, hey, you're not just taking our word, you're you've got this group They're They've done billions of dollars. It helped us grow our investor base just through raising money on their projects. And then by 2022, I mean, we were doing, you know, our first deal of 2022 is 168 units. We were buying two other class A deals that year, smaller unit count, but a higher price per unit. And right now in the next few weeks, we're going to be closing on 112 units in in North Carolina as well. So to kind of summarize, it really has been step by step, you know, growing from two units and then to 24 units to 32 units to almost 70 units. And then in 2022, we're getting our first deals as the lead that are over 100 units. And all that's because we were buy, sell, buy, sell, you know, quickly turn over the capital, deliver the results and grow the network out. 
Yeah, I, I think that's you, you did a really helpful job. I think a, you did a great job explaining how that kind of happened over time. So thank you for that. So switching to where you are today, is your you know is your business model to you know source deals, manage those deals, and raise the capital? Is that your primary business model with like a you know a healthy dose of flexibility depending on the deal and the opportunity? Is that accurate or or you know how would you describe it? Yes, that's. That's accurate. I mean, we've bought everything from 60s product to 2021 or 2018 product. We're somewhat, you know, class agnostic in terms of that. If a new construction property makes sense, we're going to buy that. If a 60s value add property makes sense, we're going to buy that. We're more geographically focused than, you know, vintage focused. Right. So the VSV2 fund we're launching here and we're really excited about it because the team has been hard at work researching funds, researching the right structure, making sure it's the right fit for our investors for the last 12 months. A lot of hard work has been put into it. And what it does for our investors is allows a lot of diversification, right? So you're no longer investing in a single asset and hoping that asset performs. We're going to be purchasing six to 10 different assets in different markets, which gives a ton of diversification for our investors. So really excited about this and launching it to our investors. And then in terms of product type, multifamily and student housing, both with equal equal interest or are you leaning towards one or, you know, again, it kind of depends on the opportunity, you know, or and, and then the, the, the third part of that question is, is there a, a product type that maybe, you know, has piqued your interest given, you know, the, you know, the economy where we are in the cycle and all that? So as far as student versus multi, we always end up doing more multifamily just because there is more of it. We're also, mm-hmm. you know, you can look at you can look at multifamily in Charlotte and Charleston and pick your market throughout the Carolinas, Georgia, Virginia, the Southeast in general. But student housing, you know, there's a lot more variables. There's the macro market that it's located in, but there's the university. What's the tuition cost? Is its enrollment growing or shrinking? So, you know, we we just look at fewer student properties, period. So that's that's one aspect mm-hmm. of that. I don't, we don't have plans on adding any additional product types. You know, we're not looking into retail. We're not looking into industrial. And that is, that decision is based on, you know, we've built this group of multifamily and student investors over the last five years. There's, if we were to switch product types that, you know, that might involve just going through an entirely new education process with those investors. And, you know, quite frankly, I think there's opportunity in multifamily right now. I'm not just saying that because that's what I do, but you've seen prices drop sometimes 15 to 25%. A lot of buyers have left the market. Financing is really difficult right now, but from talking to brokers, 80% of buyers aren't even calling anymore. If Mm -hmm. prices are down, if competition is down, I think that's a good time to dive in. Right. So on that note, you know what I mean. I know I I know from listening to a, a podcast you were on that, and maybe it's the deal that you're doing now, or maybe it was one you've done. You're buying and you're taking on, you're assuming some fi- some debt. Are there, you know, is, is there are there other investment strategies that you're you're more excited about? And maybe the others that you're less excited about. I mean. Assumption loans are obviously going to be pretty appealing in this market when new financing, if you're lucky, is going to be in the fives. Mm-hmm. If you use a bank, it might be in the sevens, maybe even the eights. So anytime you can assume mm-hmm. a loan that's 3%, you know, our, our current assumption loan project is 
that's obviously a lot more exciting than it would have been in, say, 2021. As far as things that I'm not generally excited about, we're more skeptical than ever on value-add properties. There's a lot of rent burden. A a lot of Class C properties have a very rent-burdened tenant base. And, I mean, you know, if you talk to brokers, like... There's a lot of properties out there that are you know, value add, but it's had four owners in the last eight years. And oh, you know, you're going to add another value add on top of that. Mm-hmm. At a certain point, those properties are yeah tapped yeah. out. I'm even skeptical on like a heavy. You know, I don't know. I've vacillated to be honest, but uh, and it, and you know, and it's terrible to be on a po- podcast and always have your answer be it depends. But it really does like depend on so much. But a heavy value add project you know, comes with so much risk, whether it's the materials and, you know, the time and the assumption that you're going to be able to bring the rent just to market. And whereas a, you know, lighter value add, you know, some element of a value add might be appealing. In my view, what's not appealing is to be the, you know, the potential fourth value add buyer. And you're trying to extract a little bit of value add. I don't, I don't see much there. I, I yeah, also the value. Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say the value add properties that I like are when you can actually show me an original interior. You know, one of our recent value right. add acquisitions, the one we're currently working on, we're talking about original '80s, original '90s interiors on over eighty percent of the units. Yeah, that's a real value add opportunity. You know, I mean, no matter what you might think, you walk into. A, I, I was making the joke with somebody recently that. Yeah, it looks like we just walked right into the '90s when we went into one kitchen, and they commented to me, "Actually, this this looks like the '80s, and the property wasn't even built by then." Right. You know, so it's you know, tastes change from era to era, and almost every renter is going to look at something that's you know more modern, more in style, the stuff they see everywhere they look on Apartments.com, and it's it's going to be worth more than that. Yeah, you know, 80s vintage. So that that true value add, I think, is where you can do something. But yeah, when you're getting to the point of change the thermostat, add a you know, paint the cabinets one more time, change the fixtures on the cabinets, then yeah, you're you're you might as well just call it natural rent growth at that point. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about you know your conversations with investors. Can you share with us, you know, you know, where your capital, your equity capital is coming from? You know, is it individuals? Is it family offices? What's the kind of makeup on that? So unsurprisingly, we obviously started out going the friends and family route. But over the years, we've worked with some family offices. And late last year, Q4 of 22, we did our first joint venture deal with a private equity firm. So we've worked with everyone from, you know, solo joint ventures, just us and another group to syndicating to working with family offices. So we've really, we've really run the gamut on it. Okay. So, you know, kind of broad strokes, you know, how, like what, like investor sentiment, you know, 18 months ago to today, how would you characterize like how that has uh, changed, if at all? And maybe like, you know, differences among those groups, you know, if you want to kind of fine tune that a bit. Well, I mean, I'm not going to start this off by saying it depends. The general sentiment in the market does seem to be, yeah, people are people are soured on it. People are worried. Everyone is saying, oh, you know, Q4 
Q1, that's when all the opportunities are going to happen. I was actually recently, we've had this conversation multiple times, so it's, it's not the only time, but I talk to investors with capital to, capital to deploy and they tell me I talk to brokers, I talk to this. As I mentioned earlier, I ran by a conversation I had with them. I said, look, tell me where I'm wrong. You talk to brokers, 80% of buyers aren't even calling anymore. Financing's the hardest it's been in a decade, if not longer, 15 years. Financing's hard. People aren't looking. Prices are down. That's a time, to, you know, does all that sound true to you? They'd say, yeah, that, that sounds true to me. Okay. The consensus is that all the dry powder exists. It's getting back into the market. Q4, Q1, rates are going to get cut. Financing's going to get easier. The more people are going to be on the sidelines or not the sidelines, getting back into the game. I hear all of that. I say, the competition's up. Why where there's no competition? If you can get a deal to work today, refinancing in two to three years will right. be phenomenal. But, you know, people people are hesitant. I mean, even everyone who says they're going to get back into the game if there's a recession in Q4 and Q1, I think it's worth remembering yeah. during the great financial crisis it's not like, you know, the market crashed and everybody jumped back in. People were still terrified. They thought it would get worse. You know, the people who got back in in 2009, they made out really well. But a lot of people, understandably, still said, we're not ready yet. We think it could go down, et cetera, et cetera. So, again, that was a very long-winded answer of saying a lot of people are on the sidelines. But I think there's good buys out there for people who are in it. Yeah, yeah. So, given that... You know, whether it's when you're doing your like your underwriting or, you know, communicating an opportunity like the one you're closing on to investors, are you focused on, you know, certain aspects of the deal more, more, you know, you know like kind of certain aspects of the deal now, you know, more so now than you did, you know, 18 months ago? I think in-place cash flow is a lot more important now than it was back then. I used to joke with brokers, you know, back in 21 and 22, they'd, you know, what's a cap rate? They seemingly didn't matter. Everything was value add. Nobody was using agency debt on an acquisition anymore. It was all bridge this, bridge that. Now for the first, uh, one broker I work with summarized it best when he said, yeah, for the first time since 2019, agency underwriting standards are back. You have to underwrite a property to see if it'll be able to use agency debt on the acquisition. And that means, you know, you're going to at least be dealing with some day one cash flow. Yeah. I, I mean, I almost feel like it's a test question at this point that I ask because uh, we're, I mean, we're, hi- you know, we're hyper-focused on cash flow, like almost immediately. And if it's not immediate, it better be almost immediate. And if it's not almost immediate, we're probably not interested. Right. And that that's just where we are. Yeah, I always say, you know, you want to be you want to be positively levered day one, but if it's not, there better be a really yeah. clear story on how I'm going to get there. Like you you better be showing me, hey, look, you know, we're saying you're pos- you're going to be positively levered as soon as you finish raising r- right. moving this lost to lease that we are actively showing exists. You know, if we're doing 15% lease trade outs after 6 more months of this, you'll be positive. I can get behind that. If you can't prove that that's where the market rent is, I'm not buying right. that. Excellent. Okay. Final two questions. Share with us a close call experience as a real estate investor, and not only the outcome, but maybe more importantly, how you dealt with it, You know, the stress associated with it. 
Uh, so you and I mentioned before we started, or I was telling you before we started, we've had one deal that was pretty rough, a property called Greenwood Village in Charlotte. We closed on it December 2019. Small property, 24 units, rougher neighborhood to say the least. It was really nice, gated, nice green grass, et cetera, et cetera. But we had some problem tenants and we moved to a victim, but courts closed. May, uh, sorry, March 15th was our scheduled court date. Did not move forward. <laughs> Ended up having that problematic tenant there for 18 months. Crime populated the property, economic occupancy plummeted, physical occupancy plummeted. We were pumping money in there to keep it alive. And you know, we were very fortunate that we did eventually sell it for a very slight profit in March of 22. But, it, you know, it was tough. And the big, to answer your question, the big takeaway from that was if you can't have, you know, on-site management in rougher neighborhoods, we're just going to pass on that. If you can't have people there, you know, it's it, it was a nightmare. It was a tough deal. Like I said, we were pumping money. My brother and I, as the sponsors, were pumping money into that for months to keep it afloat. And uh, we were just grateful we were able to get out. That's a great lesson. Thanks for that. Okay. Uh, last question. Share, share a couple of best practices for working with a co-founder, a co-managing partner, especially when that person happens to be your brother. Okay. Well, I mean, I I actually didn't have anything planned for that question, but my general outlook is it helps to be born first, which is what happened (laughs) with me. I was born six minutes first. So the pecking order has clearly been established. On a more serious note, we both take on very different responsibilities. Evan Evan heads up all of our underwriting for a so we have consistency across any analysis. And when he's done, I'll typically go over it. We're both responsible for investors, but I'm typically in charge of doing any legal thing, like any legal work that has to be done. Not like I'm a practicing lawyer, but just going through contracts, working with brokers, securing, sourcing new acquisitions. I do all of that. He does a lot of the analysis, asset management, things along those lines. So despite being about as similar as you can possibly be, we focus on very different things. All right. Will, thank you for coming on the show. If listeners would like to get a hold of you, what is the best way for them to do that? So I always say, you know, LinkedIn, uh, I'm pretty easy to find on LinkedIn, Will Matheson in Charleston, South Carolina. There's also our website. Uh, you can reach out to me directly through there. My email's on there, mathcap.com, M-A-T-H-C-A-P.com. Excellent. And for those listeners that want to connect with me or would like to be on the show, please feel free to shoot me an email at peter at verticalstreetventures.com or reach out on LinkedIn. And as always, please consider subscribing to the show. And if moved, please leave a five-star review so we can continue to have terrific guests like Will Matheson on the show. Thank you for listening. And I wish you all a terrific week. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please go to iTunes and leave a rating and written review to help us grow and reach more listeners. Subscribe too, so you can get the latest episodes. Lastly, to stay updated, head on over to verticalstreetventures.com. If you're interested in learning more about what we do, you can schedule a call with our team on the website. Thanks again for joining us. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode.